from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Eveling. Well, I want to start out with some news. I have secured a phone number for a listener call-in line for the show, and the number is 865-333-GROW. And if you're on one of the phones that doesn't have those letters at the bottom of the numbers, it's 865-333-4769. That's the full number. And I'm looking for someone to sing that into a jingle, so I I can remember a little bit better. So if you have someone in your life that you think would be willing to sing it into a jingle for me, let me know. I'd be happy to have them do that. That would be fantastic. Well, I want to thank Pam Forsman Mead. She's a listener of the show and she just sent me the nicest note this past week on how much she enjoys listening to the show. And I just wanted to say thank you to Pam because that really made my day. It actually made my week. So thank you very much for sending me that note. Well, I like to start out the show by welcoming new members to our still growing podcast group. That's our Facebook group. It's a community for listeners of the show and guests of the show. And new members this week include Sarai Weicker and Katie Dubow of the Garden Media Group. And Katie was just on the show last week and we were talking about the 2017 Garden Trends Report. So if you haven't listened to that, go check it out. It was such a fun show and I find trends completely fascinating. And I'm hoping that we can make it a yearly conversation because I'd love to have Katie on the show every year, and then she can introduce us to some of the new trends that are coming in the world of gardening. It's a changing world for sure in gardening. So welcome to Sarai and Katie, and make sure that you head on over to the Facebook group. You're welcome to join the group. And again, it's a private Facebook group, so you have to request to join. And then once I verify that you're not a spammer or a robot, you're welcome to be in the group. I'll let you in, and then you can be part of the conversation. So again, it's a place for listeners of the show and guests of the show. And I have a lot of great guests that are already in the group, like Joel Karsten of Strawbale Gardens, Deborah Madison of the book Vegetable Literacy, uh, Laura Eubanks, the master of succulents at Design for Serenity, Robert Corrick, author of Understanding Roots, and of course, Marta McDowell of the book that we just covered, All the President's Gardens, one of my favorites for this year. So there's a lot of great guests in the group already and listeners of the show, and I'd love to see you in the still growing podcast group there also. Well, it's also the only place where we pick winners for the Still Growing Podcast giveaways on the show. And last week, Katie Dubow offered to give away a 2017 Garden Trends prize pack for a lucky listener. And the winner that was selected is Letty Elkadom. So congratulations for winning that prize pack of the show, Letty. That's courtesy of Katie Dubow and Garden Media Group. Well, the Facebook group is also where I curate content for you, and then I share it in the Facebook group. And to give you an idea of the kinds of things that get shared there, I'm going to give you a sneak peek at some of the posts that made it to the group this week. And they include a pretty diverse group of postings. So I'm going to give you a little sample of what got shared. First off is something from Eric Sanrud of Mighty Axe Hops, and he is the guy that is transforming hops growing and harvesting 
in the state of Minnesota with his new state-of-the-art operation. And he just had a fascinating interview with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. And the other thing that he was letting people know about is the fact that he's updating his hops growing guide. So this is a guide that is free on his website. It's offered at his website at Mighty Axe Hops. Um, Eric was featured in episode 532, and he is completely offering this guide to growing hops for free on his website. So if that's something you're interested in for your 2017 garden, go over to Mighty Axe Hops and check out his free guide. Now, there are some pretty amazing things that happened in November of this year. On November 10th, Gregory Asher of the Carnegie Institute for Science at Stanford University announced his discovery that he had discovered what he believes to be the world's tallest tree. Now, back in June of this year, a team of scientists had already announced that they had found the tallest tree on the planet. The tree that they had found was a yellow Marathi, and it was almost 90 meters high, and it was found in Malaysia. So they're thinking, okay, we found the world's tallest tree, check that box. But then along comes Gregory Asner of the Carnegie Institute, along with his team. And he finds not only one tree, but 49 trees that were exceeding 90 meters. And they were as high as three blue whales stacked end to end. So how did they discover the tallest trees in the world? And these trees, by the way, were discovered on the island of Borneo. Well, it's technology. Just like the article we discussed a few weeks ago about the giant sequoias and how they're flying drones way up into the giant sequoias to measure how they're able to withstand the drought in California, they use technology again to find these very tall trees. And in a press conference, Gregory answered that he had used these laser shots, that they had shot out 50,000 laser shots per second, and they fired them out of the bottom of a plane as they fly over these trees and it provides a 3D view of the forest canopy. So that's how they were able to find these amazing tree specimens. So that article is in the group this week, along with a few recipes that I shared. And these are kind of some crazy recipes. So buckle up. The first one is from littlesugarsnaps.com. And they shared a cheesy puff pastry that's filled with sun-dried tomatoes. And this one's really fun. It's a fun party appetizer. And Jane says that it's her most requested item when she attends a party. So just a quick overview. All you do is take sun-dried tomatoes that are stuffed into olives, and then you wrap them in a cheesy puff pastry. And again, that's from Jane over at littlesugarsnaps.com. That looked amazing. That's something I want to try because I always get the uh, sun-dried tomato stuffed olives. We can't uh, keep them around in the fridge here. So, And then the LA Times had posted this article, and it was talking about what to do with winter squash because, of course, you know everybody's got so much winter squash. And then at the very bottom of the article, they post this recipe recipe for pumpkin pie, which in and of itself isn't that amazing or extraordinary, but wait for it. They do something completely different. The crust of this pie has bacon and bourbon in the crust. Can you imagine? So that got posted in the Facebook group. And then I'm looking for the very best autumn checklist before we head into winter. And here in Minnesota, we're supposed to get snow by Friday. So we're down to the wire. I need to go make sure that my 
uh, spigots are turned off, that the water's drained out of the hoses. That's my last little to-do, and I always wait right until I see that we've got snow coming. So that's something that I need to do this week. But one of the things that I'm sharing in the group this week is from Gardenista, and they showed this most adorable image of a mason jar that was filled with crushed eggshells. And I do the same thing with the kids. I have trained my kids that when they use eggs throughout the week, that they have to crack the shell and then put it back in the carton. And then we take those shells and just pitch them out into the garden. We don't save them in a mason jar. We just pitch them out into the garden. And then if they land on top of the snow, eventually they make their way down to the soil. And then as we're gardening, we work those uh, eggshells into the soil. So if you don't have a way to get them in your garden right away, go ahead and use my method. If you want to save them and use them in the very super cute jar, you can do that as well. And finally, my favorite article of the week came from the Empress of Dirt that showed her process and how to make garden art allium. I'm telling you, this is amazing. She takes a softball and then pounds nails into the softball, spray paints it to look like an allium, puts it on a stake, and it is to die for. It's a showstopper. It's amazing. So head over to Empress of Dirt and check that out. But that's in our Facebook group as well. So that gives you an idea of the types of things that are posted. And I'd love to see you in the Facebook group for Still Growing. It's the Still Growing podcast group in Facebook. Well, for the show today, I'm welcoming back Anna Thomas, the author of Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore, and that book was featured in episode 537 of Still Growing, and it is still one of the most popular episodes of the podcast this year. So give that a listen if you haven't already, and if you like that show, you're going to love this one as well. Now, this show is dedicated to Anna's holiday menu, which is her specialty. She's very good at it. And we did this entire interview on November 1st, the day after Halloween, before I even had a chance to sneak my kids Halloween candy. And here I am talking to Anna Thomas about holiday menu planning for gardeners. It was a total pinch me moment, but I guarantee you're going to be in a holiday mindset after listening to Anna Thomas. Well, hi there, Anna, and welcome back to Still Growing. Hi, Jennifer. It's so nice to talk to you again. Yes, and we are talking right after Halloween, and we are getting right into it. So first, let me say happy Thanksgiving, happy holidays, happy New Year, because we are celebrating all of the holidays on the show today. (laughs) Anna is here, and we are going to be talking about some fresh ideas for gardeners, cooks, and hosts on how to celebrate the holidays holiday season in the kitchen and around the table this year. So why don't we start by having you share with us your thoughts on holiday cooking in general and how you approach tackling any hosting responsibility, getting us in the right frame of mind to be a thoughtful and relaxed host, especially during the holidays. Well, that's a big challenge, you know, because a lot of people get very, very stressed. And, uh, and and I, believe me, I have been that person. I have been that stressed out person trying to think about the holidays because for a long time, I was the one in my family and in my group who had the big house with the big kitchen and the big dining room. And and I loved it, you know, and, and I liked to cook. And so everybody would come to my house for the big holidays, for Thanksgiving, for Christmas Eve, for who knows what, everything. And I've I've hosted a lot of big holiday meals. Over the years, things changed. One of the things that changed is 
really, you know, we we have a lot of people who eat in different ways. And and this is the thing that came up a lot in recent years for me and with people asking me questions about it too. And actually it was what led to to me writing this new book, to, uh, writing Vegan, Vegetarian, Omnivore, because, you know, people would just come up to me and if they knew I wrote about food, they would just sort of clutch at me and say, I don't know what to do because I'm supposed to host Thanksgiving and, and, and this one eats only that and that one won't eat this and the other one eats something else and, you know, I just want to give up. I don't want to do it. And... I've had that exact experience, you know, more than once. And I thought, this is not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can't we can't give up on having people over and and let it be, uh, you know, feel like such a stressful, terrible kind of chore. And that's when I started thinking about it. And I thought, what is the real point in a holiday? It's to get together and have a good time. And to make everyone feel welcome and honored at the table. That's my goal. My goal is to make everybody feel good at my table and to be able to have everybody there who I want to have. And let's face it, Thanksgiving, Christmas, days like that, we're not inviting people over because these are the people who all share the same taste in food. That's not what makes our guest list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's like this. These are the people we're related to. These are the people we love. These are the people, you know, who are part of our family. They're our friends. They're the extended groups that we get together with through tradition and through, you know, whatever's going on at the moment. So you want to be able to have all those people come to your table and not have anybody feel sidelined and be picking their way around the plate. But at the same time, just as important, not have anyone feel guilty about what they're eating because someone else is giving them the evil eye. You know, we want to honor each other, even if we're different. And that's the thing that I keep in my mind. And honestly, I've cooked a lot. I've written about food a lot. It's the most important thing is not what's on the table. It's who is at the table. And you want to make everybody feel good. And it doesn't matter if you're making the most elaborate, beautiful meal ever, or if you're calling for takeout. I mean, honestly, (laughs) (laughs) no, really, the most important thing is hospitality and that generous welcome at your table. And, And so that's what I try to keep in mind. Now, tradition is very important. It binds us together. It's wonderful. It gives us a sense of our history. And I really try to honor tradition on these occasions. But, you know, it also needs to change and be a little bit flexible in order to be able to go on, evolve, you know. Mm -hmm. I used to say to people, I want to have food that has a past, but also that has a future. So those are the thoughts that are with me when I plan a holiday meal And I have devised my menus in such a way that they honor tradition and that they are great for grandma and grandpa and people who've eaten a certain way and are used to it and don't want to change, but also really can accommodate people who eat in very different ways. Yeah. 
Well, and you're making such a great point here about the bigger picture, which is often, you know, something that we hold on to right now this first week in November. And then as we kind of close in and urgency sets in and last minute plans are changing and there's all these contingencies, we get mired down in the details and we let things like dietary restrictions and food preferences and finicky eaters and all kinds of things become a source of division, and suddenly we don't want to cook. Right, and that's terrible. We, we let these things squeak us out, and it, it really is okay to just give yourself permission to relax, give yourself permission to know that it's okay if you buy something. <laughs> it's okay if you don't actually cook every single thing yourself. It's okay if somebody brings something and it's a little different or weird or not exactly what you had in mind. What difference is all that going to make in 10 or 20 years' time when you look back on it? No, you're just going to look back on the pictures and say, oh, yeah, my Aunt Mabel was there. It was so great. And, you know, so-and-so told that hilarious story. And you're going to be happy you all got together. That's right. Well, let's chat a little bit about menu planning and sharing duties. Is there something in the art of assigning who brings what that can help minimize some of the stress around menu planning? And what are your tips for including others in all of this? Well, I think it's great to include everybody who wants to be included. And that's really the bottom line for me. I include people in doing other things and in helping based on who they are and what they want to do, not based on what I want on my menu necessarily. Because, you know, let's face it, if you want a perfectly executed menu, hire a caterer. Mm. And then you tell them exactly what you want and they do it, you know? (laughs) Great point. But if if you want to all be cooking together as a family, um, you know who can do things and who can't do things pretty much. And, and, And people volunteer. So I say give tasks to those who want to do them and who know how to do them, who ask. Don't be afraid to buy some things. As I said before, people who don't cook and don't want to do something, don't give them a hard time. They can bring wine or flowers or help with the dishes. And, you know, here's the other thing I've learned. There are some people, they just don't want to do anything. Leave them alone. Who cares? You know, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Don't let it spoil your day. Just uh, give tasks to those people who really seem eager to do it and to help. And then don't assign something that if it fails, it's going to bring the whole thing down. You know? Yes. <laughs> if you're not sure about somebody and they've never cooked with you before or they've never been to dinner with you before, don't give them that one thing that, that like, you know, somebody says, you know, I'm going to blind the turkey and do it in this whole special way. And you just let me be in charge of that. And that's like the second cousin you've never met before. Uh-huh. Probably not, not the best idea, you know. But uh, if somebody has, you know, helped and brought things a number of times and you know they can bake a pie or you know they can make a great salad or you just, you just know they're a good cook. And they say, oh, I want to do something different. I'm going to do this or that. Great. Say yes. Say yes. But don't give somebody an assignment that if it's a fail, 
the whole thing, the whole, you know, holiday sales. That That's the only thing I would look out for. And I like that. And I like that you're keen in on desire. Because if they don't have a desire to do it, it's probably not going to turn yeah. out anyway. And somehow, uh, I think because of all the team activities we've done now, that it, everything becomes mandatory. It's like, I have to do this. You have to do that. Yeah. And you're saying, don't do that. Key in no, on what people to. want to do. Yeah, you don't have to. Nobody has to do anything. If you establish that feeling from the get-go, man, everybody just relaxes a lot more, you know? Mm-hmm. You just say, you know, here, here's, what, here's what I think I can do. You first you ask yourself that question. What do I want to do? <laughs> you decide on the master plan based on that. And, and then you, you know, decide what you, what part of it you want to do in your own kitchen or what part of it you're going to do with people who are there on the day helping you, what part of it you want to assign to people, like you bring this, you bring that. And only, only insofar as what people want to do. And it runs a lot more smoothly that way. I love that. You know, one time I heard a definition of resentment that has just stuck with me. And it said, resentment is a gift you wish you wouldn't have given. And that happens a lot over the holidays. We extend ourselves, but not with that open heart that you're talking about. Not yeah. not by establishing that feeling up front. And I love that idea. And we're learning from a master here, someone who's cooked for how many years, Anna? Have you had holiday meals that you've had to orchestrate? Uh, so. 500 years. There, <laughs> and you, you know, you have to host a few to get to this point to where you realize, hey, wait a minute, what is the bigger picture? And that's what I'm going to hang on to. Yeah, and, and I've had big, big meals with like 30 people all sitting down to dinner and big, long, complicated menus. and It's all been marvelous. And I've also had Thanksgiving wonderful. One of my favorite ones was, was just me and my two sons. I don't know how that happened that year, but like, it, you know, people were traveling and doing other things and something was going on somewhere else. And and I, I, maybe I was just getting back from somewhere. I don't remember, but like it just ended up being me and my two sons were there and we got together and we said, okay, what do we feel like cooking? And we just cooked in this most relaxed way together. That's when we made that big stuffed pumpkin. Oh, oh my God, this pumpkin, let's stuff this. And we just made it up as we went along. And we said, we'll eat when we're ready. <laughs> when the food is ready, that's when dinner time is. There wasn't a set time that we were aiming for. We had so much fun. We were so relaxed. So I've done it both ways, you know. And the really important thing is who are you with? Are you having a good time? Give yourself permission to not do everything Cross some things off the list, buy them, it's fine. You know, have a good time. I love that. Well, and Anna, you were referencing this pumpkin, and you were on an episode a while back, uh, episode 537, and you talked about making this pumpkin. And I've got the clip here. I'm going to play it. I think it's worth taking a second listen to because the story is so fantastic. And I think it's very visual for folks to listen to this. So this is Anna telling me about the pumpkin that she used for this very memorable Thanksgiving with her two boys. 
Well, I tell you, there is one particular Thanksgiving that I regret not being at your house, and it's uh, not very far into the book. It's on page 22, and it's a true story. It's a tremendous true story, and it's simply called The Great Pumpkin, and the picture, I mean, the picture alone will make, that's going to make all the gardeners just, like, stop and just look at this. I thought it was amazing. You have got to tell this story. Well, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, for many years, I always had these giant, big Thanksgivings. But there was this one Thanksgiving when, for various reasons, because of where people were and what was happening, it was just going to be a very small Thanksgiving. It was me and my two sons and I think maybe one or two friends. And so it's just going to be this little, little Thanksgiving, very quiet. And we were so relaxed. We all just decided to just sort of, freestyle it and cook together and do what we felt like doing. And I had this beautiful big pumpkin that a gardening friend had given me a friend who had a fantastic garden. And uh, the pumpkin in the book is an orange one, but this particular pumpkin that we had that time was a white pumpkin. It was so beautiful. It was sitting on my kitchen counter for a long time, like a sculpture. And we said, you know what? Let's cook that. Let's cook that. And it was around this time, I think, Maybe both of my sons were vegan then, and uh, I wasn't. You know, I've gone through different phases in my life, and I'm what I am now is mostly vegetarian most of the time. That's that's how I define it. You know, so I'm a little more relaxed. But um, they were both vegan, and I said, "Great, let's stuff this pumpkin and cook it, and let's do that." And we started putting together a big. Uh, gorgeous, you know, peel off and we added like every vegetable in the world to it, nuts and herbs and things. And we made this, we were just making it up as we went along. And then, you know, we stuffed that pumpkin, we put it in the oven. It was, it took hours. It was huge. It took hours to Mm. cook, but the house smelled so fantastic. I think we started with a farro and black rice pilaf, and then we added all these fall vegetables to it and filled up that pumpkin. Um, and then we had like a really nice, simple, lovely salad of chicory and uh, I think uh, maybe a couple of kinds of chicory, and we had some cranberry relish of some kind. And so it was not a complicated menu as menus go. And... We just ate when everything was ready. Nobody was stressed. Everybody was relaxed. We had a wonderful time. Uh, and I think we had, I think we had a fantastic dessert too. I think we had that winter fruit crumble with winter fruits and a ginger snap topping. And it was one of the most fun Thanksgivings because, you know, like nobody got freaked out. Nobody was worried about anything. We just cooked together. We laughed. And when it was ready, we ate. And <laughs> so relaxed. It sounds lovely. So, oh, it was great, you know. But, but the big, huge Thanksgivings are also fantastic, you know. But it was nice to know it can happen in a lot of different ways. Well, and I love how you were describing uh, serving this pumpkin because you cut it into wedges and yeah. it would just kind of fall away. It, it looked like a huge chrysanthemum when it, when it opened oh. up. You know, we cut these wedges and because it had gotten very soft, um, the, the wedges just fell backwards and the, the filling kind of spilled around it. And there was this big cloud of steam 
And so I, I love dramatic moments like that when you're serving a meal, and that one was entirely unexpected because we were just experimenting, you know. Yeah, and three gold stars for you. That was awesome. Well, I absolutely loved that. I love how you stuffed that pumpkin, and it became kind of the centerpiece for that meal. That was extraordinary. Yeah, that was that yeah. was pretty crazy. It oh, was fun. Yeah, that was something else. Well, today is all about sharing some new ideas for gardeners, cooks, and hosts. But at the same time, tradition is important. And I remember the year that in our family, we just scratched our entire traditional dishes. Nobody made grandma's cranberry salad. Nobody made dad's yep. stuffing. <laughs> and we went with 100% new foods and we were miserable. When we were done with that meal, we all looked around and went, oh, you know, I, I wish we would have at least had grandma's cranberry salad or we would have had, over. you know, something. Somebody, yes. Somebody said do over. Yeah, do over. Exactly. And I tell you what, we've never done that again. And I think it's good to mix the old and the new. And when I was reading Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore, you talked so much about how you've done that over the years, how you've incorporated the dishes yeah. of your family through the years, but also, you know, adding some new things that also become an important part. Part of tradition for your family. So tell us how you've done that, especially with your ancestral Polish dishes, which I find so captivating. Yeah, well, that we'll, we'll leave Thanksgiving for a moment and, and turn to Christmas. I'm Polish. I come from a Polish immigrant family. So when I was little, I was really like, I, I may as well have been living in Poland. I mean, all we spoke in the house was Polish, all the relatives friends all spoke Polish. We all did our holidays together. And it's the way a tight immigrant community functions, really. You know, people who, who've lost everything, basically, who, who, these were people who came here as refugees after the war, uh, and they have lost everything. And so when you've lost the place that you live, when you've lost all, you know, your house, your possessions, all of those things, what do you have to hold on to? Your traditions, the way you get together with people at holidays, the way you eat, that becomes, I think, even more important. So I always had a very, very strong sense of ritual about these meals. They had to be, they had to be this particular way. We had to have these things. That became very, very important. So on Christmas Eve, we would have this big, traditional Polish Christmas Eve meal, hmm. and it had, it, there was fish involved, and there were vegetables involved, there were mushrooms involved that were all very traditional, no meat, because in the Catholic Church, and this was a Polish Catholic celebration, there, there was no meat on Christmas Eve. So we would have this meal that had these things that I remember so distinctly, the beet soup, this clear beet soup with these little dumplings stuffed with wild mushrooms. Oh, wow. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. And then there were things like herrings and smoked salmon. There was this salad that I still make to this day almost exactly the same way, which is that chopped vegetable salad, Polish chopped vegetable salad. It sort of looks like a potato salad, and it does have potatoes in it. But once you take a bite, wow, it is a whole different story. It's got about 15 different ingredients in it, and including pickles and 
and and uh, pickled mushrooms and apples and you know cooked carrots and peas and it's just a lot a long list of things. So, so I remember, and then of course this dessert table later that was <laughs> unbelievable, you know, with like fifteen kinds of you know sweets that people would bring over. I remember these things very very distinctly from when I was a child, and when I grew up, I. I was, uh, I was, you know, sort of cooking a lot of these things and doing them the same way. And then, then I shifted a little bit and made some things a little bit differently. I sort of made them my way, but I really hung on to certain important flavors. Like I switched from beet soup with mushroom dumplings to porcini soup. And it had little, little pierogi, little pastries on the side with cabbage and with potatoes all still completely traditional Polish stuff, you know. But I shifted those wild mushrooms and kind of gave them their their centerpiece position in that soup. I changed things a little bit, but I really kept to a lot of those same flavors and the same ingredients and the same, you know, even some very specifically the same dishes. And I still make that vegetable salad. And my family all want to eat that and they wait for it and they would fire me that would not be christmas if we didn't do that you know if you didn't do the vegetable salad well it's called my yeah it's called my polish chopped vegetable salad it's on page 109 in vegan vegetarian omnivore and i the other thing i i love about your approach is that you have no qualms about portioning these things and modifying part of the batch for people who have different preferences. Yeah. And it says right in here, it says, when my son began eating vegan, I made two versions, one traditional, including hard cooked eggs and one vegan. And everyone tried both and everyone decided they liked the eggless one better. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. That was a really interesting revelation for me. I was, you know, I thought, well, I'll just be making this in two versions now, you know, <laughs> forever. <laughs> no, uh-uh. Everybody tried both versions, and everybody decided this one, oh, we like this one better. It's got kind of a clearer flavor. But, you know, we're talking about a recipe here that has many ingredients. Yes. Uh, it's a long list of different vegetables and things. So, so when you take out one thing, you take out the hard-cooked eggs, it's not like it radically changes it. Yes. Uh, it's a subtle, it's a subtle shift. But the whole menu on Christmas Eve has has really shifted over the years, you know, because people there are things like my sister's Russian tea cakes must have right? <laughs> not Christmas, not Christmas without them. But then other things would happen, and and this is how holidays evolve. We have um, for for many 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 years. There are several families that we would all get together. I would invite these other families over. That adults were friends of mine. The kids were friends of my kids. We all lived together in the same little town and knew each other. So it was kind of like extended family. And one of them, uh, Larry Yi, who's Chinese and uh, has d- developed a great skill in drying persimmons which is actually sort of an ancient Japanese art, but he learned it from a Japanese friend of his. And he would dry his whole crop of persimmons from his tree in his backyard into this most amazing delicacy. Hmm. 
nothing to do with Polish food whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but the year that he brought over a platter of these dried persimmons dipped in dark chocolate, I'll tell you, everything changed. It's like everybody suddenly like turned on a dime and said, okay, <laughs> the Russian tea cakes and the chocolate dipped persimmons, those are both now required every single year. And then my, my friend Dennis, one year did dry smoked salmon that that he decided to do for Christmas Eve and he cured it and, you know, it had like peppercorns and things on it and he dry smoked it and fired it over. It was so good. It knocked all the other the smoked or cured fish out of the <laughs> out of the menu and replaced them. And also I, I the year I think that Teddy and Chris both were vegan, we started adding uh fresh homemade hummus to the appetizers. Yes. And you know, it's great. I mean, you have whatever, and people bring things over, too. And so these things kind of become part of the menu, and it still has the porcini. It still has the pierogi. It has a few very labor-intensive Polish things. <laughs> it's got. We've still got the Russian tea cakes that we've had for 50 years. We've still got the Polish chopped vegetable salad. But we also have these other things that have come in for really good reasons, because they're part of, of what we do for people we love, or somebody we love brings that thing over and introduces us to it. And that's what holidays are made of for me. And that's what I write about when I write about the power of tradition and how things, how things change so that they can go on, yeah. and how this, this whole meal that we have on Christmas Eve has evolved over the years, mm. you know, taken on these other, these other things. And, you know, my mom would love it. She's mm. gone now, but if she ate that meal with the, with the, you know, the Japanese traditional dried persimmons and the hummus and all of these things, she'd say, great. This is wonderful. I love this. I think it's wonderful, too. And I love right in the menu for your Christmas Eve menu, you say Larry's dried persimmons. It's, it's not in the yeah. cookbook. It's not in the book, but it's, it's such a part of your menu. It had to be in there, just like Teddy's favorite hummus. I'm like ripping this book apart going, where's Teddy's favorite hummus? But it's just part of your tradition. That's how it ends up on the menu. And the same thing with the salmon. And, you know, I love when someone's name gets attached to a menu item because because then it really does become part of your family history. Well, this is what I, that's the name that that has in my house. So I thought, I'm just, that's what I call it. So that's what I'm going to call it here. I love it. Well, I always like to make a meal in one casserole or a soup, like minestrone, for the night before I have guests, because I know that I have spent usually a lot of time trying to get ready, and then I forget about the fact that everyone needs to eat the day before as well, not just the day of the event. So I try to make something simple, you know, that can be made the day before, but also something very delicious. Do you have dishes that you put together so that the day before entertaining can be easy and almost autopilot? Uh, you know what I think is great for that? It is a big pot of really good split pea soup. And that's something that you can make ahead of time. You can have it in your refrigerator. You can have it in your freezer and take it out. 
but also it's very easy to make. So it, it's not like a, a, a lot of work. You can also just sort of whip it off a couple of days before and, and have it waiting for you in the refrigerator. And it's one of those soups that really hearty and filling you can elaborate it you can put croutons on it you can put cheese on it you can put you know crispy you know bacon sort of uh garnishes on it you can you know you can do all sorts of things to it so people who eat in different ways can have it in their own preferred way and you have that with some kind of like big chewy dark bread and uh, maybe some good, you know, piece of cheese or something. You could have a little salad with that. That's a meal. It's very simple. It's very different from the kind of food that you're making for the holidays. So we don't get that fatigue of everything is, is, is one way, one kind of flavor profile through these days. You have something that's completely different, easy, you can be doing other things and put that on the table and sit down and have a relaxed meal. I love that kind of thing. Minestrone can work the same way. I have a great recipe for old-fashioned winter minestrone. It's a little more work because you've got to cut up a lot of vegetables and do a lot of things. So the thing I love about that split pea soup is, man, it is easy. It's just anybody easy. can do it. Now, is this is is that split pea soup recipe? I have to ask. Is that in your love soup cookbook? You know, there's one in love soup, and there's a variation of it. Yeah, on page one seventy two of vegan vegetarian omnivore, smoky split pea soup. Smoky split it's, pea soup. Yeah, it's the evolution of the split pea soup that was in love soup, and I made it just slightly differently and used some smoked paprika and a couple of little little twists on the recipe and I loved it even better. <laughs> really? <laughs> so uh, smoky split pea soup, it's right there in Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore on page 172. All right, I'm flagging it. I have, this book is so flagged now, it's ridiculous. None of the flags even help me. There's just too many of them. I have to, <laughs> I'll have to... <laughs> to go back and dog ear that baby well let's get this party started let's let's pretend that we are going to your house for thanksgiving that it's a large gathering maybe something more traditional and somewhat formal we've got little girl little girls and dresses and grandmas and grandpas and mostly family but maybe a few friends and i'm ringing your doorbell and i've brought my own apron and some flowers. I made you a succulent top pumpkin a la Laura Eubanks, who was on the show telling oh, me how to do that. So nice. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the big day. It's Thanksgiving. So put me to work helping to welcome guests and let's go through the appetizers. Tell me what you've got here. Oh. You've got dips, nibbles, small plates, drinks. What are we serving? Okay. Well, I, you know, one of the things that you want to think about uh, before I answer that question is how long do you want that appetizer course to be? Because in some households, that's kind of a thing that goes on for hours, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's what I call the walking around food. It's the food that's there and whatever, you know, is happening and people are mingling and they're having a drink. But in some places, maybe people are sitting and watching a football game. Maybe they're in the backyard watching a football game (laughs) in a place. And this this could be almost in place of a late lunch, sort of didn't eat. And uh, now they're, they're starving and it's a few hours until dinner. 
So it depends how big your appetizer hour is, if it's an hour or if it's hours. But I like to have some things that are a, a little tiny bit different. I always have crostini with some kind of green thing. And that might be carrot top pesto that I think we talked about once before. Yes. Or it could be mojo verde, which is another wonderful thing made of parsley and cilantro and chilies. And, you know, these are things that you make in your cuisine art, like you would make any any kind of pesto. And you have crostini, you have your your mojo or your uh, carrot top pesto, and maybe you have some some creamy white cheese, and people can sort of mix and match and put things together. Maybe some crumbles of gorgonzola to put with that carrot top pesto. So you have a, a plate where people can sort of make their own little stack them up how they like. Then the other thing I like to have, of course, is a good hummus. And everybody has now at least 10 recipes for good hummus. So the point is make it fresh. And then have that with vegetables, have it with snap peas or have it with little carrot sticks or have it with any anything that you can dip into it that's a crunchy vegetable because there's going to be a lot of starchy food. Yes. And it's great, it's great to have something like that that's a little bit different, but not it's not just onion dip, but it's a little more satisfying than that but it also, you know, brings a few vegetables into it. And then one thing that I love to do is I love to make miniature black bean and chipotle quesadillas. I'm so glad you brought this up because that's the one that I thought, oh my gosh, the kids would go crazy for that. Oh, yeah, they're delicious. And it takes a a little bit of advanced prep in that you want to make those those black beans, those spicy black beans or refried black beans. You can do that days ahead. And, and have that in your in your freezer or in your fridge, depending when you made it. Um, it's not complicated to make, but it just takes a little bit of time. So you want to make that ahead. I am a big proponent of doing things ahead of time. Okay. And I, I call that out in recipes all the time. You know, I tell people you can make this ahead of time. Um, so then putting the quesadillas together, that's really easy, you know. Yes. <laughs> you take flour tortillas, you smear some of those refried black beans, and then you can uh, drop a little chipotle sauce on those. Uh, some of them you can put cheese in, some of them you don't put cheese in, so if you have vegans, they can enjoy them too. And you just fold them in half and and, and uh, put them in the pan for a little while till they're just slightly golden brown on both sides. And then you just cut them in the little pieces that you want. You cut them in little wedges instead of big ones. And people can pick them up. It's a great little finger food. Now and you're that doing is, that on a fry pan, Anna? Yeah. I okay. just do it on the stove, on a fry pan. Yeah. Okay. Of course, if you want to have them all completely done ahead of time, you know, an hour or so ahead of time, then you can just lay them all out on a cookie sheet and put them in the oven for a second to warm up. That's a good way to do it, too. Okay. It's fine. And that's just a slightly unusual appetizer, but people love it. They love it. Wow. And then, of course, you know, you can add whatever you want. You can have spiced nuts. You can have those roasted green beans that you roast until they're crispy, and then you pick them up with your fingers. There are a lot of things that you can, you know, you can have a huge array. If you have a big crowd, a lot of people, you can make that sort of assemblage of appetizers, (laughs) more involved if you want to. 
One thing that I, I have done a couple times that I really like for a big party is to have a soup that you serve uh, during, not sitting at the table, but like in little teacups as part of the, the appetizers. And so if you have one of these simple little pureed soups, like I love parsnip and apple soup for this mm. time of the year. Because those are things that are really in season now. It feels like a really nice winter soup. And it's slightly savory and slightly sweet. It's got this interesting flavor profile. And uh, it's a puree soup. And you can just have like little little shooters, little teacups. Wow, <laughs> and, I love that. And that becomes part of your appetizer spread. Well, let's roll through the Thanksgiving menu that's featured in Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore. And before we do, could I have you read the paragraph that starts out, I set out to devise on page 20? Sure. Okay. I set out to devise a menu that could stand alone as a robust celebratory meal for the vegan or vegetarian and could also embrace the traditional turkey. It would be seasonal, fresh, and everything would go with everything. We would toast each other and all eat the same meal in slightly different versions. No vegetarian would have to nibble around the edges of a plate, and no turkey eater would feel deprived or guilty. And it worked just that way. A wonderful time for everyone. Over the years, that meal evolved. It became its own tradition, redolent with flavors of the harvest, full of the spirit of hospitality. It's Thanksgiving for a crowd. It's the one when you when you pull the extra tables out of the garage, you know, and everyone pitches in. And it begins with an abundance of vegan dishes, including a few dishes with cheese or butter and, and one big roasted turkey. So it's very adaptable. I can run through the whole menu for you right now. We just talked about the appetizers, the little miniature black bean and chipotle quesadillas, some of them with goat cheese the crostini with the carrot top pesto, uh, optional crumbles with gorgonzola, the snap peas with hummus, and, and possibly even a little soup passed in teacups if you have that, that fancier party that you're describing. Yep. Then, then I make a polenta torta with roasted squash and onion marmalade. And this is a polenta that you, that you make uh, in a slightly stiffer version and pour it into a big sort of a big cake pan and make a mold and it's full of roasted squash and these caramelized onions it's got a fantastic savory uh, deliciousness and that torta sits in the middle of a big platter and it is surrounded with a lot of different vegetables I like I always like to have roasted cipollini with green beans uh, you know the little onions that I roast in the oven I love to have sauteed kale with garlic that is just one of my favorites, and it goes so well with that polenta. I like to have all kinds of roasted vegetables, so we can open it up and talk about that. But uh, the other thing is a roast turkey with herbs and a, and a giblet sauce all goes with all this other stuff perfectly. It's all mix and match. So the flavors all work together. If you're a vegan or a vegetarian, you can have a big wedge of the polenta torta surrounded by eight kinds of different 
vegetables and you're fine. And with cranberry sauce with oranges and wine and with uh, the roasted yams with green chilies that are in a casserole and with that sautéed kale, and believe me, you've got a fantastic meal. But if you're a turkey eater, you can have a smaller slice of polenta with your turkey. You can have, uh, you know, all the same vegetables. You can have your harvest bread stuffing. Everything works with everything. And this is a menu that I've evolved over the years. And I first had a version of this menu in way, way back in the new vegetarian epicure. And I called it Thanksgiving for Everyone. Mm. And that's what I call it in this book. This is the evolution of that same menu. And that's really where I started to do the kind of thinking that led to this whole book. How can we all sit down and eat the same meal but in variations and everybody be at the same table together? Mm. And then, of course, dessert, you know, pumpkin gingerbread or cranberry crumble, whatever your favorite pies are that you make at your house. You know, I love <laughs> that's it. the kind of thing where you have to just say, what is it that you do at your house? And everybody's got one. Everybody's got a pie or something that they, they just must have. Yes. Well, I'm calling a turkey timeout here because you say you like to cook the turkey without stuffing in it. Is, yeah. What is the reasoning behind this tip? Well, I'll tell you, there are, two, there are two reasons to do it this way. And the first one is it just simply roasts better because you're not adding a lot of mass it to confuse the temperature and the roasting time you've weighed that turkey you've figured out how it's gonna how it's how long it's gonna roast more or less using probably julia child's method okay (laughs) (laughs) how many minutes per pound and how much you know leeway to give and all of that all the rest of that you know if you fill giant cavities full of some dense mass of something else it's gonna throw off how that uh, turkey roasts. It really does roast better, and you can make a delicious turkey by loosely putting into that cavity handfuls of fresh herbs, lots of garlic, halves, onions cut in half, maybe a few lemons that that you've cut up in chunks, and you just put all that stuff in there, and it's just flavor. It is the aromatic combination that you want to have and then a lot of butter all over that turkey and away you go and it it roasts beautifully it has a wonderful wonderful quality herbal quality that comes through from all those herbs that you put in there you know rosemary and parsley and thyme it really roasts better and then you put you make your stuffing and what I do is I divide it into two casseroles. So I have one that is completely vegetarian, and I have the other one that I pour some of the pan juices over when it comes out of the oven. Okay. So it has that it has that exact quality of the stuffing that was in the turkey. Only you know you didn't have to put it in the turkey and confuse the the cooking time with yes. that. But then everybody can enjoy the stuffing because I make this stuffing that really is practically a meal in itself. It's a very hearty dish. It's my harvest bread stuffing full of traditional flavors. It's got a lot of wonderful things in there. It's got onions and apples and raisins and walnuts and herbs. And 
it's just delicious, and I don't want to have somebody not eating that because it was in the turkey. I'd like to have everybody, whether they're a vegetarian or a turkey eater, be able to enjoy that. I like that. And, you know, with your stuffing, I was going to ask you, do you make that ahead of time? Well, I make that, like, that morning. Okay. You know, and it and it sort of sifts and all the flavors kind of blend together. I think you could you could probably make it the night before. I I don't think there's any problem. I'm just trying to remember if I've made it the night before. I think I usually make it the, the same morning, but I don't see any reason why you couldn't make it the night before. Okay. And then and then just put it in those casseroles and bake it. Oh, I like that. Yeah, so you could have it all ready to go. And yeah. then you're going to make the two variations. You bake them at the same time. <clears throat> Your turkey's in the oven. If it's a big turkey, it's going to be in there for a while. And past a certain point, you start to have a lot of pan juices. And you can ladle out a little bit of that and, and, and pour a little bit of those pan juices over one of those casseroles. Or you can do it when they come out and when okay. they're done. Okay. I mean, it works either way. It's It's pretty, you know, it's not like making the souffle. It's pretty forgiving. Okay. Can we talk a little bit more about the polenta? Sure. The polenta torta. When I first looked at it, I thought it looked like a sweet potato pie. <laughs> well, it's a torta. So it's a it torta. Has, yeah, it's a torta. So it has the shape of like a cake. Um, I've done it different ways. Sometimes I've mixed all the onions right into it. Other times I've, uh, I've mixed some of the onions into the polenta with the roasted squash. And then I keep back some of those deeply caramelized onions and I spread them over the top. Okay. So it just looks like a yellow cake with onion icing on top. Yeah, that's what I that's what I was looking at. Yeah. And it almost and, like to and, me, the first time I saw it, I thought it was like a candied pecan over the top. But that's this yeah. is the onion that I'm seeing. No, no, it's a savory dish that is just fantastic. It's just wonderful. And I like to use kabocha squash because it's very uh, dense and starchy, so it helps keep, you know, the, the polenta doesn't get too soft and watery that way. It, it, oh, okay. it keeps very dense texture. And is it very rich? Oh, it's, yeah, it's rich. <laughs> <laughs> rich and delicious, yes, and because this is a holiday. Yeah, this is a holiday. We get to splurge here. How about your cranberry sauce? We didn't talk about that. I love cranberry so much. Over the years, I've had like 10,000 cranberry recipes of different kinds that I've done, including cranberries with jalapeno peppers and cranberries with spices and cranberries with wine and cranberries this way and cranberries raw and cranberries cooked and cranberries with oranges. <laughs> you know, I, I just love them. I think cranberries are fantastic. So uh, on this menu, I have a very simple, traditional cranberry sauce with oranges and wine. It's a pretty popular combination. You see it in a lot of recipes. And this is my very simple version of cranberry sauce with oranges and wine. But, you know, any cranberry sauce that you love and that you make will work in this menu. Okay. Well, you know, Thanksgiving for gardener cooks naturally includes a lot of vegetables. So your cookbook is a perfect fit. And there are plenty of dishes that naturally include things like sweet potatoes, corn, beans, carrots. What are some ideas that you have for incorporating vegetables into a gardener's Thanksgiving? Well, I'll tell you, this is the question I've been waiting for because I I love this. I love the idea of uh, having things from your garden. I think that the point of this menu, of the 
you have the polenta torta, you have the turkey, and then you really can vary all those vegetables that are kind of surrounding that torta and work with the turkey. So what what you have and what you like and what you have have grown yourself, there could be nothing better. I love root vegetables. Yes. Those plain chains that are so often ignored. I just love them. And I have a recipe for roasted root vegetables with a citrus glaze. It's on page 271 if you want to look at it. Okay. It is really delicious. And you can vary the root vegetables. They don't always have to be the same. But this particular one has carrots, celery root, turnips, potatoes, and it also has sunchokes, Jerusalem artichokes. Oh. But, you know, it's very open to interpretation. So depending what kind of root vegetables you have, if you have rutabagas or if you have certain, you know, special types of potatoes or, uh, you know, parsnips, whatever you have, you can put them together in this really very simple citrus glaze and roast them. They are so good. Root vegetables just become something amazing when they're roasted with a little glaze like this. So that's one thing that I love to do. Another thing that I love to do is a sweet potato or yam, you can do it either way, casserole with green chilies. Not super spicy. Okay. Not like not like, you know, going to take the roof of your mouth off. Yes. But just that right kind of contrast with the mild richness of the sweet potatoes or the yams. And that's a casserole recipe that I have on page 305. And you know what? I got that. That was an invention of Larry Yee, the same guy who's responsible for the persimmons. Oh, for crying out loud, uh, really? Um, he, he first made that. So that was wonderful. Um, the other thing that I really like to do, and this is so easy, if you're growing chard, and yes. I know people who grow chard and then it, you know, it, it stays pretty well into cold weather, I think. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, it's pretty hardy. If you've still got that forest of chard out there, a wonderful braised chard with raisins and pine nuts. Super easy. It's like oh a quick saute and then a little steam, you know? And you add a little bit of a few raisins in there and a few pine nuts, and I think it has a splash of vinegar. That's a great recipe. I love that. Oh, my gosh. chard with raisins and pine nuts. So if you've got chard, be grateful that it's still there for you because that's a delicious one and very quick to make. Okay, walk Um, me through this because when you're saying braise it, what does that mean? I've got my fry pan out. How do you deal with your, your chard? Any kind of a braise basically consists of first you're sautéing and then you add a little moisture and you're you're steaming. So with this, I wash the chard. I I use the stems, by the way. I slice up the stems kind of in little, like half-inch pieces. Oh, I love chard stems. They're delicious. Okay. And then I cut the leaves like if they're really giant, you know, the charred leaves that you look at them and you think, well, let's see, should I cook this or should I make a shower curtain out of it? Um, <laughs> cut those in half lengthwise first and then crosswise into strips, you know, like like one or two inch strips. They don't have to be tiny. Okay. And then you just you heat some olive oil in a big wok or a big giant saute pan. You sizzle some garlic in it for just a few seconds till it barely, barely starts to color. 
Then you add all that chard and a little salt, and you just stir-fry it. You know, oh high heat. High uh. heat, three or four minutes. Then you then this recipe calls for just a few tablespoons of orange juice and a little bit of rice vinegar. So you've stir-fried your chard. It's wilted down. Now you throw in that tiny bit of orange juice and rice vinegar, and you add the raisins, and you just cook it a tiny bit more. You, you put the lid on for a little while, then you take the lid off and toss it again until most of the moisture cooks away. And that's a braise. That's a very quick braise. Hmm. You know, that you add your pine nuts, and if you like, a little crushed red chili. I always like that, but you don't have to. So easy and oh just delicious. Yeah. No, tart is one of my favorites. I, I love chard. It's one of my favorite vegetables. And again, it's one of those things, you know, it's, it, it gets overlooked because just like the root vegetables, chard is one of those things that's pretty easy to grow and yes. very plentiful and very cheap. So it's not one of those glamour vegetables that we wait for, like asparagus in the spring or something yes. like that. Yes. But it's fantastic. And it's so beautiful. I mean, the first time I grew it, I grew it in a a container on the western side of my house. And so it was slow to grow because it's on the west side. But what I loved about it was that the sun would hit it in the evening, right before the sun went down, and it Uh positively glowed. And, you know, the stalks are all different colors. So they're orange and they're... Well, they're rainbow. Yeah. Rainbow. Oh my gosh, it was like Christmas lights, you know, built into this. And I just, I was captivated. After that, I grew it. I never stopped growing it. It was just one of those that won my heart. I I love it. So, yeah. yeah. I love it too. And and of course, kale also. Kale sauteed with garlic in a good olive oil with a little sea salt and then just maybe a drop of lemon on it. Super simple. Don't overthink it. That is delicious. It's delicious as part of your Thanksgiving spread, and it's delicious anytime. Mm-hmm. So that's another one. And kale is still there for you in the in the you know as the weather gets cold. Yes, so and so easy to grow in the cold frame too. If you're doing a cold frame, yeah, those are all things that I would say to gardeners. You're lucky to have those in your garden and enjoy them. Use them. Well, your dessert section, uh, you mentioned you do this pumpkin gingerbread, and you also have a crumble recipe that you can modify in any way you want, blackberry, cranberry, what have you. Do you want to walk us through these really quick? Yeah, all every kind of fruit. That crumble recipe is great. I'm just looking it up real fast here. Okay, winter fruit crumble. It has a topping that I am crazy about. It's a ginger snap topping. It's not made out of ginger snaps. It just has that flavor of ginger snaps. So it's a basic crumble topping with, you know, rolled oats and flour and brown sugar and and spices. But you put a whole lot of ginger in it and a little molasses. And it has that flavor of gingerbread or ginger cookies. And that on top of apples and pears, for example, wonderful. It's great. All your different apples or pears, whatever you have that's in that genre, hmm. is just delicious with this. And you put a little lemon juice and sugar, a few raisins in there, into that filling. And this is one of the easiest desserts to make. And it'll be one of the most popular ones. Well, I love it because when I think crumble, I'm always thinking cinnamon. And you're kind yeah. of taking it up a notch with the ginger, especially for the holidays. It's fantastic. 
Yeah, I love ginger. Wow. So I'm putting it in everything all the time. Well, and speaking of ginger, we're going right into your pumpkin gingerbread. And you call this pure comfort food. How fantastic is this? It's so good. It's a very easy gingerbread. You can make a big pan full of this, you know, not very long. If you're growing pumpkins, you might have pumpkin that you've cooked down from your own pumpkins in the garden, or you can open a can of pumpkin and do this. Um, this is a vegan pumpkin gingerbread, if you can believe it. I mean, hmm. of course, you can have it with a big scoop of ice cream or whipped cream if you're not vegan, and that's great, too. But it's just a delicious thing to be able to have that everybody can eat it, even even people who don't eat dairy. And it stays super moist because anything, you know, that you put a vegetable or a fruit into, <laughs> you're, you're going to not have it be drying out. It's going to stay moist. So the fact that this has pumpkin in it, it's like a gingerbread, cakey kind of gingerbread that's almost like striving to be a pudding. It's so moist. Oh, wow. And very, very easy. And believe me, this disappears. It's delicious. <laughs> Well, how about after dinner drinks or coffees? Are you guys big on that? Do you do you warm up a pot of coffee yeah. when you're serving these I'll kinds of you, things? Here's what I like to do after dinner. If there's anything that involves dark chocolate, like a nice little piece of dark chocolate, or if somebody brought a box of really great little dark chocolates, then you can just keep drinking that really good red wine that you were having <laughs> And have that with a piece of dark, bitter chocolate. And that is fantastic after dinner. Oh, wow. But but some people like to have coffee. They love to have their piece of pie with a cup of coffee after dinner. And then I say, great, just make a really good pot of coffee. No decaf. (laughs) Okay, no decaf. Yep, yep. I I mean, you know, I'm kidding. You know, sure, if you want to have decaf, go ahead. I personally think decaf is the devil. But, you know, (laughs) uh, I understand. You know, I'm, I'm a coffee drinker. I love a really good, strong, delicious cup of coffee. I buy good beans, freshly roasted. I grind them up. And I make a good, strong pot of coffee from very, very good beans. And that's the whole thing right there. Yeah. I don't put any, I don't put anything in it. I don't put fancy, I don't like flavored coffee. I don't like pouring liqueurs into it. I just like a really great cup of coffee that tastes like good coffee. Ah. I like that too. Well, and you know, having family that's from basically rural Minnesota, the, you know, farming heartland of the country, uh-huh. you know, you can't have dessert. You can't finish a meal without a pot of coffee. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so there you go. Uh, all right. That's great then. <laughs> <laughs> but I could be persuaded with the wine and the dark chocolate. You had me there. That's for yeah. sure. Oh, good. Oh, it is so good. Well, let's talk garnishes. Last year, before a party, I just organically created what I called a garnish bowl. I went out into the garden and I cut a bunch of herbs that God had freeze-dried for me, which we had such a mild (laughs) winter that they literally just freeze-dried right out there in my kitchen garden. I could see from my deck. It was gorgeous. So I went out. I'm going to send you a picture of this after the show. But I, I went out and I snipped all of my herbs that had been freeze-dried outside. And then I brought them in. And as my guests were bringing dishes, I would just kind of garnish them with 
with these beautiful, you know, flowers. Most of them had bolted. How would Anna, yeah, if you'd have been here with me and we were going out, we were snipping all of these herbs. How would have you approached this? So we clip all of these herbs. How do you incorporate that into dressing up dishes? I live in California. So my situation's a little bit different. What I frequently do is go out and just cut big, beautiful branches of rosemary because I generally have like a hedge of it somewhere, (laughs) or or enormous big bushes of sage. This is stuff that tends (sighs) to kind of grow wild almost in California, and and mint also. If you have mint growing. You know, because the mint that you buy in the store, it'll it'll wilt in five minutes and yes. and deep. But that robust mint that used to grow in my all amongst the roses in my rose garden, <laughs> it would just go all year long. So I like to cut branches of things like that. And then if you're putting out like a cheese tray, something like that, you know, yes, you just lay a few branches of beautiful rosemary that you've just cut or beautiful, you know, thyme also can be very, very lovely in a smaller way or a branch with with fresh sage leaves and you just lay that along the side of the platter and it's lovely, it's beautiful or on the side of your where your bread is that you're cutting, a branch of rosemary on the cutting board. Those things can be lovely. I don't like to garnish actual dinner plates, like the plate that anybody's eating off of. That gets a little overcomplicated for me. Everything that's on the plate, I want it to be something that somebody's going to eat. Yes. (laughs) So I don't put like little fancy sprigs of things on the dinner plates. But definitely if you have like a wonderful salsa, or even if you have a uh, your carrot top pesto or a mojo verde or something, and you have that in a shallow bowl, and then you just lay a few sprigs of something along the side of it. It can be very, very pretty. But that's something that nobody can tell you, do it exactly this way or do it exactly that way, because everybody's dishes and plates that they're using are different. Yes. If they have, if they have a pattern on them, you don't necessarily want to add anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to confuse the image too much. Very, very much something that you want to have be done intuitively in the moment, just the way you did it, exactly yeah. what you described, mm-hmm. you know, and basically don't overdo it. Don't overdo That's it. Like, yeah. A few, a few sprigs or branches here or there, but not everything, not okay. with every dish. Okay. Because then it all, it starts to look like, you know, a, a big wind blew through your <laughs> oh my gosh i love that well hey let me ask you this as long as we're we're talking about sprinkling over certain things i was immediately thinking back to those soups we talked about so the split pea or this minestrone would you garnish those at all with herbs do you do that on certain soups i love to sprinkle herbs on them and it's usually either fresh parsley or fresh cilantro Okay. Certain soups, it could be mint. It depends on the flavor profile of the soup. Okay. If it's something that's, you know, Middle Eastern, it might have mint. If it's something that's more kind of Middle European or like that soup, that split pea soup, it would be fine with some parsley on it. Okay. The apple and 
parsnip soup that we were talking about, also probably very, very good with a little bit of parsley on it. That would be fine. You don't want to do something that is purely decorative and brings a different flavor in. I do garnish a lot of soups with cilantro because there are a lot of soups I make that really work well with cilantro. Yes. Sort of lemon, things that have lemony and chili flavors in them, things like that. So you, you have to think flavor first. Think flavor first. And then how about the vegetable chop salad? I saw, is that dill on top there in that image or is that something? Yeah, else? yeah, dill for sure. Lots of fresh dill with that one. Ugh, I love dill. Great. Me too. So good. Wow. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Let's say our shopping is done. We're done with the holiday of Thanksgiving. We're bringing in some oatmeal for Santa's reindeer. When we went to visit reindeer a couple of years ago, I learned they that's their favorite thing is to have oatmeal. So now we lay out, we set out oatmeal and dishes for Santa's reindeer. And we're all coming over to your house to celebrate Christmas Eve, which I have a feeling is your favorite holiday meal based on reading your cookbook book. And I'm wondering if you could read the dedication that's in your cookbook, because this is something that's very special to you. It is. It is very much. Well, the dedication in this book is to my Christmas Eve family, beginning with my own family, Chris and Teddy, Eve and Tomas, and including with open arms, the families who became my larger tribe, the comrades in the kitchen, the cast of regulars, and the friends from far off places who joined when they could, I love you all. So that's my dedication. And that phrase, the Christmas Eve family, that was actually coined by one of the kids who was part of one of these families who would come over every year. He's grown up now. Emery Mitchum coined that phrase. He said, yeah, that's my Christmas Eve family. Everybody who who comes on Christmas Eve is the Christmas Eve family. So then I started calling it that too. I love that. Well, it's very special. I mean, your whole book is about so many different types of meals and dishes. And yet that is what became the dedication. And I thought, well, there you go. That's the meal I want to be part of if I'm coming over to Anna's house, because it's so special to you. Uh, These people are very special to me. We've celebrated holidays together. We've raised our kids together. You know, we've watched them grow up. And we've cooked together, and it's, it's a great life journey. And that's the thing about holidays. And that's why tradition is important, because it binds us together this way. Yes. Well, let's talk about the Christini that's on the holiday menu. It's the appetizer for this Christmas Eve meal. And it's got the persimmon again in it. <clears throat> Raw persimmon and jalapeno salsa. I'm telling you, one year, Larry Yee brought over, you know, he's Mr. (laughs) Persimmon, and he brought over this salsa, and we started, we had other things, you know, to put on crostini, so we started putting this salsa on it, and it was so fantastic. I just made this for a party a couple days ago, because it's persimmon season right now. This is when those, those persimmons are coming into the markets right now. This is made with fuyu persimmons. They're the type that you eat when they're hard. And uh, you don't have to wait till they get really soft and mushy. Those are the hachias. But fuyu persimmons are the ones that kind of have an, a more apple-like shape. 
Okay. And you eat them you eat them when they're actually hard. You have to wait till their color is really good, that nice orangey color, and that means they're ripe and sweet. But they're still, you know, you 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 cut them up while they're still hard. Okay. They are fantastic. And I chop those up, I mix them with walnuts and with chopped up jalapenos and some fresh lime juice and a whole bunch of cilantro and a few cumin seeds, I think. And that salsa, people go crazy. <laughs> they go, what really? is this? I want more. Yeah, it's a little bit of an unusual one, and it's just delicious. So if you can get fresh you persimmons where you are, yeah, have a go at this. It's really, it's really good. So we get them in the store here, but obviously in the Midwest, you know, this is not an everyday thing that people have cooked with. What do you tell right. people? What's the, so it's your if it's their first time, if you're a persimmon virgin and you're going uh-huh. to make this salsa, this to die for salsa, what do you do? So we we look for persimmons that are more you, ripe, you or want, do we bring them home and for- ripen them? Yeah, they want, you want to have persimmons that have a good color. You don't want like sort of pale yellow persimmons. Okay. You want persimmons that have a nice orangey blush to them. And um, they they should be pretty hard. They can have a little bit of give to them. You know, like if you squeeze one and it feels a little bit like a like a good, you know, tennis ball or something, you know. Okay. Like it doesn't, it, it's not mushy, but it gives a little bit. That's okay. You don't want it to be too soft. And then you cut them up and you eat the skin. The skin's fine. You just wash them and chop them up. You taste one. If it tastes sweet and delicious, it's good. You know? I mean, okay. <laughs> just like with any fruit, you taste the slice and you know you've got a good one. You chop them up. You mix them up with uh, chopped up walnuts and with the chopped up jalapenos. I hand cut everything for this salsa and then I just finish it with a couple of little quick spins in the cuisine art. Okay. Why do I hand cut it? Because I don't want it to turn into a mush. Oh, I don't okay. want to do all the cutting in the cuisine art because by the time it gets chopped up enough, it, it sort of almost turns into a, you know, into a mass. And I want to have little distinct bits of persimmon and nut and okay. chili in there that you can see. But it's very easy. It doesn't take very long. It's very easy. And you can have it rougher or or more chopped up. That's just a matter of taste. Okay. And you said right in here that the persimmons are sweet and they absorb the heat of the jalapeno. Yeah. 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 And as with all chilies, you know, you add a little bit, you taste, and you see. Because okay. a lot of jalapenos these days are not very hot. They've been bread. I think it's disgraceful. A lot of them don't have the heat that they used to have. And then every once in a while you get one that really does. So there's no way to tell except by tasting. So you just have to add it a little bit at a time or taste it when you're cutting it up. And remember, when you're tasting it just by itself, it'll feel hot. But you're not going to be eating it by itself. It's going to be in there with the nuts and and the persimmons, which are both very rich, mild flavored things. So you need probably a little more than you think you need, and it's not going to be too spicy. Hmm. Well, there are two signature dishes that are part of your Christmas Eve menu. The first is the pierogi that you make two ways. Yes. 
and then the yeah. porcini soup. Let's let's talk about both of these. So the pierogi, walk us through this. Well, the pierogi, it's a pastry. It's a very, this is the most labor-intensive thing, probably, that I do in my whole repertoire. So I only do it once a year, but it's a lot of fun. You have to make this very rich pastry that I make with butter and cream cheese and flour. It's very easy to make. But it's, uh, you know, kind of like a very rich pie dough sort of pastry and with cream cheese in it. So that gives it a little tang. And then you make fillings. One of them is a potato filling and one is a cabbage filling. It's very, very simple in terms of the ingredients, but you have to cook them down for a long time. Everything is finely chopped up and it's cooked down for a long time. So it really caramelizes and gets very dense. And that's what gives it this wonderful flavor. And so you, making these fillings, you know, can take a long time in your biggest saute pan, just stirring it once in a while and letting it cook down. Okay. Once you've got the pastry made and the fillings made, then the whole process of assembling, you know, forming these pierogi, that's the fun part. And that can be, it's one of those things you do it with, you know, a couple of, you know, with your sister or your cousin or a couple of people who come every year for Christmas. And it, it reminds me of the tamalada that I've been to, you know, when you have tamales, which is a wonderful Mexican Christmas tradition, there's two parties, really. There's the party where you eat the tamales, but there's also the party where you make the tamales. <laughs> where people get together and sit around a table and make hundreds of tamales and fill those coin husks and tie them off. And, and, and that's like a whole tradition in itself. So in my house, making the pierogi is kind of like that because you roll out these big sheets of pastry and you, you know, cut them in little circles and then you drop teaspoonfuls of the, of the filling on there and fold them over. They're little turnovers. Tiny little turnovers. They look like little pasta that you might get in an Italian restaurant or something, you know, and they're not very big. We press them together with the tines of a fork and make this little crimped edge. And then I always mark which one is which by, by poking them with a fork either once or twice. And there's a code, you know, <laughs> two forks for cabbage, one fork for potato or whatever. Oh, okay. you however you decide to do it so you know which ones are which and then we line them up on cookie sheets and we bake them and uh, you can brush them with an egg wash if you want them to be really shiny and brown but they're baked they're not boiled they're baked you know pierogi is one of these things in in polish cooking there's like a million different kinds okay (laughs) big little sauteed boiled, baked, every kind that you can imagine. That's what I do. It is a labor-intensive thing. If you've never done it before, my instructions are very clear and specific, but I would say allow a day and have a couple friends and don't do it too close to the day. Do it well ahead of time when you're not stressed and thinking about other things. Do it well ahead of time and then put them in the freezer and they freeze perfectly. Wow. Well, Anna, the next time you do that and you have a bunch of people over to help you put this whole machine together to make them, you should video it. And then I'll I'll watch you guys do it and I'll do it with you so that I because I, I also feel like it's something where I'd be so much more successful if I had someone that had done it before. Yeah, yeah. It is definitely the type of dish that you learn from somebody else doing it with them. 
and then you then you know how to do it, and then you do it, and then you teach the next person. You know, yes. it's one of these things that's passed down traditionally. Yes. That's right. Well, we we cannot talk about your Christmas Eve menu without having you also discuss this Christmas Eve porcini soup. And this menu, this item is actually featured in your cookbook, Love Soup. And you, you wrote about this. This is the queen of soups. This is the one that I make once a year for Christmas Eve. It's dark, aromatic, and utterly delicious. I feel it's worth the effort of finding porcini, driving somewhere to pick them up and then cleaning them. Once that is done, it's quite an easy soup to make. So I was completely hooked by your description. Tell us all about porcini soup. You just said almost everything that needs to be said about it. <laughs> <laughs> because really the whole thing is, and, and this is so much the case with so much good cooking, it's start with the right good ingredients. Mm. And if you source the right ingredients, you know, you're you're pretty much there. So it's not so easy to get porcini where I live. They're not so easy to find. I live in a dry, arid climate. We don't grow porcini around here. There are no forests here where you can go wander into the forest. And, and if you know how to identify mushrooms, get those wild porcini. We're not in Italy here where you can go to the market, to the farmer's market, and all through the fall and into the winter, you see big, enormous piles of fresh porcini for sale. Wow. So I have to work a little bit to find my porcini. And one one thing that I have found is that if I find a good restaurant supplier, a wholesaler who supplies good restaurants, and I make friends with somebody there, or I just call them up and say, look, I, I'm interested in getting some porcini. I'm not a restaurant, but, you know, can you sell me some? They know how to, they they always have those things, right? You go to a good Italian restaurant and you get porcini risotto. They're getting their porcini through that restaurant supplier. So that's what I've done. Okay. Um, now, in different parts of the country, it's different. Up in the Northwest, um, you know, in Oregon, in Washington, you can go to the farmer's market and find really good wild mushrooms, fresh. And, you know, it just depends what, where you live, what kind of climate you live in, what sort of forests are around okay. nearby. But okay. you might be able to find them in a farmer's market. But the other thing I've found that's fantastic is at a really good place that also is, it's kind of a, a retail store and also a restaurant supply place that has a lot of foods. I have found flash frozen porcini. Oh. And they're, they're, the, they're not dry. You know, they're the fresh porcini that have been flash frozen. And those have been wonderful. Those have been great. So that's made my life a lot easier. You can, you can probably look online and find some place near you where you can get fresh porcini. You know, these days, you really can get that kind of information, and and it's a godsend. Wow. Now, with the flash frozen, do you have to worry about the water content when you're going to use them, or do do they not retain the moisture? Well, here's what I do. I, I defrost them slowly, and I capture all the liquid that comes out of them, and I strain it through cheesecloth to make sure there's no dirt that I don't want in there, and then I use that. I add it to the soup, so okay. I don't lose I don't lose any of the flavor. 
and they are soft like anything that's been frozen, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to be sauteing them anyway for yeah. a long time until they're really, you know, dark and, and reduced a lot in any case. Mm. If you have fresh porcini, great. Clean them, slice them up, and you're ready to go. If you have flash frozen porcini, you know, you defrost them slowly, and then you give them a very quick rinse. You capture all the liquid. You don't let it go away, and you put it through a piece of cheesecloth or a very, very fine mesh strainer of some kind, and then you will add that to your soup. Okay. And then the the method for making the soup is very simple. It's just a whole lot of sautéing. You sauté onions, you sauté mushrooms with some garlic and salt, and, and you just use all your biggest pans and sauté all this stuff for a long time. Your house smells like heaven. Oh my and I do a mix of porcini and portobellos or Italian browns, and then a whole lot of onions. And pretty much that's it. I also make a fresh vegetable stock that I infuse with a little bit of dried mushrooms. I buy some dried porcini. Those are very commonly available everywhere. I make a fresh homemade vegetable stock. I don't use any canned stock for this soup. And I add some of the dried porcini, just a little bit, you know, like an ounce or something to that stock. So you're layering the flavors of the mushrooms through everything. And then it's this beautiful, clear, dark, clear broth with big slices of mushroom and onion floating in it. And it's just delicious. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it. So when I was researching this soup, I kept running into this one as well. So I have to ask you about it. It's four words. It's your green soup with mushrooms. What is this all about? That's a good, you know, green soup is a whole thing. I mean, I first wrote about green soup for the L.A. Times like a million years ago, and it became kind of a cult thing. I mean, people started writing me about it and sending me emails, and I then wrote about green soup in other magazines, and I have a whole, I, I think I have two whole chapters about green soup and love soup. Oh <laughs> green soups for the winter, green soups for the summer, you know? Um <laughs> And they're and they're very simple soups, and I love them. I love green soup, and it's basically made with dark leafy greens. There are versions with spinach, with kale, with chard, with mixes of all those things, with sorrel. And then I made a green soup where I did it with all the you know usual chard and spinach and onions and whatever, and I added sautéed mushrooms, and I pureed that all together, and it gave it this sort of earthy depth and body that was wonderful. So it's just one of the green soups that everybody really likes. And I'll tell you, that would be a great one to have in the fridge. You know how we were talking about the minestrone or the pea soup or something like that? Yeah. That would be a good one too. That That would be a good one to have on hand for those meals where you just want to have a soup supper and it's easy, but it's very satisfying. Last question on soups. I have to take advantage of the fact that I'm speaking to someone who knows how to elevate a soup of good standing and make it into something very spectacular like Poe's father in Kung Fu Panda because you know the secret of making (laughs) soup great. And in your case, I've heard you say before in interviews that you believe that there really are some secret ingredients that elevate soup. 
What are they? Well, I don't think anything I do is a secret, really, because I tend to, like, talk about it and write about it and put it in books. Yes. <laughs> so that makes it kind of not a secret anymore. One thing, of course, is if you make your own vegetable broth, that will make any soup really a lot more delicious. It's not that hard to make your own vegetable broth. It's pretty easy. I've got very simple vegetable broth recipes. I have several of them in Lux Soup, and I have one in Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore as well, a very, very basic, easy one. Uh, you know, it's a few easy vegetables that you usually have around, and you can, you know, you can add things. You can throw in the leek tops. You can throw in more parsley. And you just let that cook. It's it, it, it's like five or ten minutes of work and then an hour of it simmering and then you strain it. That makes a big difference okay. to a lot of soup. The other thing is I use caramelized onions in a lot of my soups. And I believe that gives a lot of soups a great uh, depth and umami uh, flavor, and I I think most people are afraid to really go the distance with caramelizing their onions. My rule of thumb: when you think you're done, another half hour, and then you know look at it again. Oh, you're uh, Really let those onions, but you know don't let them dry out. You know keep a little moisture in there. Put a lid on that pan. Make sure there's a little moisture in there. But really let them get a beautiful, caramelly, light brown. Don't stop at yellow. And you will see what a what a difference that makes in the flavor of those onions. Hmm. So that's one of the things I like to do. And then the other thing is I have to say, you know, very often when I'm making a soup, <clears throat> you know how you drop a bay leaf in there or something? Yeah. I very often drop... A chile arbol pod. Those are the little dried chilies. You buy them by the bag full. They're pretty commonly available. And it's not a super hot chili, but you sort of, I use it like a bay leaf. I put it in there, I let it simmer with the soup, and then I take it out when the soup is done. And it just adds a nice kind of layer of warmth to the broth. Hmm. How do you spell so, that? How do you spell that? A-R-B-O-L, Chile, C-H-I-L-E, de, D-E, Arbol, A-R-B-O-L, Chile okay. de Arbol. And I'm sure you can order it online, but I just buy it in the supermarket. You know, it's everywhere. Huh, fascinating. I have to ask you on your caramelized onions. So you're starting out with a pan. Let's take it down like to the very most basic home yeah. cook here. You start out with yeah. a pan. Do you put water in there? How do you chop up your un- like my thing I is all, I cut them up by hand. It takes about a minute. Okay. I mean, it really doesn't take very long because you're not you're generally not looking for it to be beautiful. You're looking for it to just be chopped up. It's going to turn into a jam essentially. So I chop up a few onions. I put some olive oil in a pan. I throw those onions in there. I sprinkle some salt on them. Okay. And away we go. And then I go do my email. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it does itself, okay? You give it a stir once in a while. I can, usually I start it out for the first couple of minutes on a, on a slightly higher heat and stir it. And then once the onions start going limp, I generally make sure that there's enough moisture. Usually there is enough from the onions themselves 
I cover that uh, pan, I lower the heat, and then I just check it every, like, 10, 15 minutes, give it a stir. But if you don't have it on a high heat and you have a lid on the pan, it'll capture enough moisture that they won't they won't scorch. You'll be fine if you have a very nice low flame under them. And then your house starts to smell really good, uh-huh. and then your teenage son comes in and starts <laughs> to reach in with Fork and eat those onions right out of the pan. Oh and my gosh. Slap them away. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> anyway, and sometimes you can add a little thyme, a little crushed thyme or something like that. But, you know, that's extra. I mean, basically, it's just onions in a little olive oil with some salt. Okay. That's it. Okay. We can do that. We can do that. Now, let's talk Christini. Because you love to use Cristini in most of I your do. menus. I do. I do. Mm-hmm. What are your tips yeah. for Cristini? Yeah, I like I like them better than crackers. Well, you can get a really good baguette. I have some places that I go here where I can get great baguettes made with, with you, you know, you can get whole grain baguettes. You can get baguettes with, with people who grow their own wheat. And, you know, I mean, there's some good bakers around these days. So you can get a much better product than anything that you would buy in the store. And you can also use up that day-old loaf or that two-day-old loaf, and it's just fine because you're going to basically turn it into a cracker. I just slice up a baguette into fairly thin slices. I lay them out on a cookie sheet, and I very lightly brush them with olive oil and then give them just a tiny, discreet little sprinkle of sea salt. And they go into the oven, and I keep an eye on them. And when they're just barely turning golden, they're done. I take mm. them out. I let them dry out. They get crisp as they as they cool off, and there they are. They're fantastic. And that's the secret. Well, you just let them. You you put a little olive oil and a little salt, and you and you bake them off. And uh, I can't remember some like maybe around three hundred degrees, something like that. Uh, okay. And, and you just let them get, it depends how you like them. You can let them get golden brown or just golden. Take a look at them and see. And then as they cool off, they'll get crisp. If, they, if you let them get a little color, they'll, get, they'll crisp up as they cool off if they're thin enough, you know? Okay. You don't want to have big, thick, fat slices of bread. You want crostini, you want them to be kind of like a nice cracker. Yeah, a slimmer profile when you're cutting those. Well, I love that you created an Italian menu, and you said for Christmas, New Year's, or any celebration, and I think lots of people turn to Italian if they know they have to cook for a crowd. Yeah. Um, It's just so easy, (laughs) and everybody likes it, right? It has universal appeal. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we have you read the second paragraph on page 28, because I think it sums this up so nicely, and then walk us through this delicious menu that you had created. Italian style, yeah. This is the one that you can really sort of plug in anywhere. Okay, second paragraph. Of course, it is flexible. The flatbreads are for everyone, served as the Prosecco flows, and the antipasto table is a vegan's bounty. But it also includes smoked tuna with capers and spoonfuls of fresh ricotta that can be added to the jewel-like beet crostini. The exuberant pasta is all vegetables. I started with the spicy flavors of an arrabbiata, added dark green sautéed rapini, and finished with crunchy toasted breadcrumbs for a robust dish. Does anyone have room for more? 
steamed lingcod on aromatic savile and onions is a beautiful but not heavy dish. Lovers of seafood will be delighted with it, but I don't think anyone who stops after the pasta will go hungry. Buona festa. That's it. The Italian menu sounds like this. With a glass of Prosecco, we have rosemary flatbread with truffle honey. Rosemary flatbread is one of the easiest things to do in the world. You just make an olive oil bread dough and roll it out and cut a few slashes through it. Brush it with olive oil and drop some rosemary over the top, and it's just wonderful. And truffle honey, if you can get some truffle honey. Mm -hmm. uh, That's a very traditional Tuscan thing. And it's so amazing because it's kind of like sweet and foresty, earthy at the same time. Honey that's got little bits of black truffles in it, or, or white truffles for that matter. Wow. But you know what? Rosemary flatbread, it's delicious whether you have it with truffle honey or not. And I've also had that same rosemary flatbread with any of my usuals, you know, my carrot top pesto or my <laughs> or anything like that. Okay. Um, then we have a big antipasto table because I love a big antipasto table. And so we have the sweet and sour glazed beets, which are beets that are, as the name indicates, uh, in a sweet and sour glaze and cut up in little dice. And we pile those on top of some of the crostini that we just described. And you can have that with a spoonful of ricotta under the crust, under the uh, beets, or you can have them straight up, just the way they are. Wow. The roasted winter vegetable antipasto has got to be one of my favorite things. And it really just consists of an array of vegetables that are roasted, but individually. So you can take, you know, you have a pan full of carrots, you have a pan full of slices of fennel, you have a pan full of little fingerling potatoes, you have your cauliflower florets, all of these, each one of them has its own pan, so you can take it out when that particular vegetable is done. You don't mix them all up together. And they're all really simple. I mean, they're basically just bathed in a little olive oil with a little salt and maybe some pepper, and and then they're roasted. And I like to line them up in, you know, still keeping them all in their separate, you know, <laughs> like the carrots and the potatoes and purple cauliflower when I can get it, uh, all lined up on a big tray in rows. And it looks so beautiful and they're so delicious. And it's a very simple, it's a very simple thing, but it's sort of lavish and wonderful with all these different vegetables. Mm. So that's a, that's a great one for gardeners. If you have, if you grow uh, carrots that are in different colors, yes, that's so much fun. And I don't peel the carrots for this, by the way. I pick nice, slender carrots and I just scrub them with a vegetable brush, oh, okay. and I leave it on. Yeah, and I leave a little bit of the green part on the end, and I roast them just like that. And then you pick them up with your fingers. They're just beautiful. Wow. Uh, then we have the marinated cannellini with olives and roasted peppers. That's a lovely, very simple, um, you know, thing made with, with white beans. And we have smoked tuna in olive oil and capers. Those two things kind of go together. You can mix them together or you can have either, either part separately. Cannellini beans mixed with tuna is a very traditional 
Italian appetizer. I have the smoked tuna in olive oil and capers in one dish and the marinated cannellini with olives and roast peppers in another dish. And I put them next to each other and you can mix them up or have them separately. And that way everybody's happy. Okay. Then, then we have the penne rigate with garlic, rapini, and sautéed breadcrumbs. This I looks describe. fantastic. It, it's a robust, big-flavored pasta dish. It's just the kind of thing I love in the winter. Really a very, very delicious pasta dish with a, a lot of garlic flavor in it. And those sautéed breadcrumbs on top to give it a little crunch. It's just wonderful. And then mink cogs steamed on top of fennel and onions. I, I cooked down some sliced fennel and onions, and then I literally put pieces of cod on top of it and let it steam on top of that so it sort of takes in the flavor of the fennel and the oh. onions. It's a lovely, not very heavy seafood dish. By that time, if you have any room left, good for you. You're a good eater. <laughs> <laughs> But this is one of those meals, it's a real holiday meal, it's in courses, and it's got a very sort of extravagant feel to it, and yet all the dishes are really pretty pretty simple, rustic dishes. They don't take any special skills, everything takes a certain amount of prep time. You know, you want to prep all those vegetables that you're roasting and, you know, all of these things take some preparation time, but they don't take any uh, very, you know, um, particular, you don't have to go on to chef school to do this. Yes. You know, if you're, if you're a good basic home cook, you can do all this. And then for sweets, really forte that I buy, that's what, that's what I love with this. Really? And things like candied orange peel or nougats or truffles. That's what I like to have after a meal like this. I love this meal. I'm This is a go-to. This is flagged for me. So starting with that rosemary flatbread, which I agree looks fantastic. So we've made it to New Year's. And I love how you describe this event. Big party small plates. And you mentioned this menu leans toward room temperature dishes. And I really liked that idea. So what are the room temperature items that are on this menu? Some of them are actually cold. Some of them are room temperature because, you know, you have to keep it easy. And you want to have um, food that you can sort of have on a table for people to take or that you can bring out and pass around at certain times. Because people are mingling, maybe they're dancing, maybe it's a dance party, they're hanging out, and it's not a sit-down dinner. So this makes all of that possible. I have pumpkin seed pesto, which is something I really like. It's a, a slightly richer pesto made with pumpkin seeds. So I have my crostini with pumpkin seed pesto for this one. I also have beluga lentil and caramelized onion puree. So this is something I learned from my friend Haiga, and it's a Middle Eastern thing that is very, very simple but very delicious. You cook black lentils, the beluga lentils, and you cook them, and you cook down some onions until there's that that nice golden brown color we were talking about. Yep. And then you have 
just a little, you know, a little bit of rice and a little bit of, I think it's a little, um, I'm not looking at the recipe, but if I'm not wrong, I think that there might be a little bit of cumin in there. You puree all that together. It's, it's not very many ingredients. It's very simple, and you'd be amazed at the flavor of it. Those black lentils are just amazing. So you have... You have crostini with all kinds of lovely, wonderful things, and you can just keep making trays of those if you have somebody helping you, or you can put everything out with a giant basket of crostini and just let everybody do their own. That's another way to do it, a little more casual. Okay. I make a charred red pepper mixture. I make the beluga lentil and caramelized onion puree. I make the pumpkin seed pesto. All of these things can be spread on crostini or on crackers. I also have some smoked trout that I buy, and I have a little creme fraiche next to that. And all of these things are kind of mixing, you know, mixed with, with crackers and with crostini, uh, how, how you like it. Um, I also like to have sliced radishes with sweet butter. Very simple. You just have to have good radishes and good sweet butter huh. and a little uh, flaky sea salt. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing to have. And then I have bowls of marinated olives and spicy nuts. And the one thing that's a little bit different on here is my onion agrodolce galette. Yes. It's just a big, you know what a galette is. It's like a cross between a pizza and a pie. Um, you make a big uh, batch of this dough. You roll it out. You spread your agrodolce onions and tomatoes on it. And then you fold up the edges a little bit. <clears throat> and that is delicious. Wow. <laughs> really good. Because agrodolce, which means sour and sweet, you know, okay. you cook the onions, you add a little, you, you they get sweet naturally from being cooked down, and then you add a little vinegar and raisins to those onions. And this makes a, a pretty amazing mixture. You spread some roasted tomatoes on that dough, and then you top it with these agro dolce onions, and you bake that off. You can do it with olive oil bread dough, or you can do it with a pastry, you know, like a pie pastry dough, oh. either way. And that makes a savory slice that is really wonderful, and it's just fine at room temperature. So all of these things are things that can be cool or room temperature, and they're just perfect. And then there are hot plates. This is where we come back to our parsnip and apple soup and teacup. Also, the miniature black bean and chipotle quesadillas that we talked about for Thanksgiving. Yes. Those things are very good. The, the soup should be hot. So you pass that around, you heat it up, you pass it around in little teacups. Then you have roasted potato wedges with mojo verde. Roasted potato wedges. How simple and how delicious. They're so good. Yes. You know, it's basically like French fries, only crispier and not as greasy. Done in the oven, you get very nice smaller potatoes. You cut them in wedges. You keep the skins on them. You just toss them with a bunch of olive oil and salt and pepper and maybe a little bit of thyme if you want. And you put those in the oven and you roast them until they are crispy. And you have those with mojo verde and everybody will just go insane. They'll love that. Really? I also add to this menu my mint-scented pork and pine nut meatballs. Yeah. And those should be warm. They should be warm. They don't have to be really hot. So I have this divided into the cold plates and the hot plates, and it really leans more towards the ones that can be cold or room temperature because you want to keep it easy. 
Okay. And for dessert plates, dark chocolate almond bark. <laughs> easy to do, easy to serve, delicious. Pick it up with your fingers. And if you want to have something that you eat with a fork on a plate, there's Galician almond cake with a citrus and spice caramel sauce. I love that cake. It's a traditional cake in Spain, and it's made with basically just a whole lot of ground-up almonds and sugar and eggs. And you know, I mean, that's pretty much it. It's so good. It's a very dense nut cake. A little slice of that with some citrus and spice caramel sauce is a wonderful dessert. Yeah, and almond cake in general. I love almond cake, so. Yeah, me too. Wow. Me too. Well, before we close, I'd love to talk a little bit about this thing called planning for the holidays because interruptions, illness, countless other interlopers can sometimes derail holiday plans. Yeah. And it can really send you into a downward spiral if you're not careful. And you wrote to me before this show and you said, we can also talk about an easy get together, the kind of thing that is not the big important meal of the season, but the one where you just kick back with some friends. And this may very well be the meal that people either plan for or suddenly find themselves having to adjust to when plans go astray. So let's set the table for this, how these less formal, semi-spontaneous holiday meals can be just as fulfilling as the big formal parties. I think they can be wonderful. And we've already talked a little bit about the kind of thing that can work for that. And that's one of these soup-based suppers. And I want to add to that the words pot luck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just let everybody bring something. Uh, some of my favorite potlucks have been unplanned, two hours notice, what have you got in the house, what's around, bring it. They can get pretty crazy, but they can be so much fun. And if you have something like, say, a big pot of chili, the, the way you can plan for the unplanned moments, actually, is to have, like, say, a big two-quart container of black bean chili in your freezer or, or white bean chili, the kind that you can divide in half and have one part with chicken and one part vegan. Mm. I do the black bean chili two ways, too. I do one part with turkey and one part that's completely vegan. Oh, that's okay. And, you know, you have a big pot of chili... You can make some cornbread in 20 minutes, and away you go, right? People bring other things. They bring salads, or they bring cheeses, or dessert, or something for an appetizer. Everything's groovy. You know, you're set. I think that's the thing. If you have something like that in your freezer, that's an easy thing that everybody likes, that's like a stew, or a chili, or a big hearty minestrone soup, or that split pea soup we were talking about, something along those lines can be kind of the anchor, the thing that starts the party rolling, and you know you're going to be okay no matter what else anybody brings. Yes. And then you're kind of ready. You know, you're sort of ready to roll with it when it happens. I like that idea. And, you know, there is time to do that now when you're not in the frenzy of trying to put up the tree and decorate. And we're right there. Yeah. It's So now's yeah. the time to start laying in some of those soups and, I know. and getting is, that going. Yeah. Do a little bit of advanced preparation. Now, my sister always says soup in the refrigerator is like money in the bank. You know, <laughs> it's like you can really make something work if you've got that. 
And, you know, there are casseroles that work that way, too. But for me, because I'm such a soup lover, I just got in the habit of making these kind of soups that are either based on lentils or on some kind of legume that can be a really very filling kind of thing. So it's very substantial. It really can be the center of a meal. There's one in vegan, vegetarian, omnivore that I just love. Just trying to look it up real fast here and see if I can find it. I want to tell you about it. It is tomato soup with chickpeas and Moroccan spices. Oh, wow. If you are a tomato grower, if you're a gardener who grows tomatoes, you probably have like 50 pounds of tomatoes all ripe at the same time at some point during the summer. Yes. And then you, and you put them up in jars. You just like puree them or you peel them and leave them whole and put them up in jars, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is where you get to collect. This is where you're a genius and you get to collect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you cook up some garbanzo beans with a bunch of garlic cloves and one or two of those chile de arbol pods. And that gives you a beautiful bean broth and your beans. Maybe you add some vegetable broth to that. You saute some onions and you add a whole lot of your wonderful tomatoes. And then you have some like a little bit of lightly toasted cumin seeds, some mint leaves and a few, just a tiny few pinches of ground cinnamon, you get that Moroccan spice mixture in there. This is a wonderful, wonderful soup. It is completely satisfying. You eat a bowl of this and you know you've had a meal. And it's the kind of soup that you can have in your freezer, ready to take out if something happens and you just need to improvise a meal for a bunch of people. And you tell somebody, bring a salad. You tell somebody else, bring dessert tell somebody else, bring a couple really great baguettes or maybe some flatbreads from somewhere. And pretty soon you're having a wonderful meal and you are ready for it. So if you want to really be a genius during the holidays, have something like that in your freezer. And then when you tell people you grew those tomatoes, then people really will like fall at your feet and bow down because then you really will be I love it. I love it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Anna. Well, this has been so fantastic. I thank you so very much. You've gotten us ready for the holidays and to do what we need to do, which is enjoy it. Enjoy the time with the people that we're with. So I so appreciate your time today. This was absolutely fantastic. And it made me very hungry too, by the way. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. You made it very easy. And I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday. And just remember, whatever happens with the food, It'll all be fine as long as you're with people you like and you get to spend some time together. That's the important thing. It absolutely is. Thank you so much, Anna. You're very welcome. Thank you. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Anna Thomas of Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore once again for being a great guest on Still Growing. And here's another announcement. Anna is going to be at the Miami Book Fair on November 19th at 4.30. She'll be speaking at the Miami Book Fair. It's this huge book fair at Miami-Dade College. She'll be at Kitchen Stadium. The address is 300 Northeast 2nd Avenue in Miami. And again, it's Saturday, November 19th at 4.30. So if you want to see her 
cooking demonstration of the recipes that are featured in Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore and hear her speak, that would be a great opportunity. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, David Myers, I'm Kadena, and David Gregerson, and of course, my podcast production assistant, Taylor Davey. Just a reminder that I'll have all of the information from the show today on my website at sixfootmama.com. It's also the home of the Still Growing Podcast. Again, my website is sixfootmama.com. It's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.